prayer. God, take us deep, build our faith, right? All right, you can have a seat. Welcome. We're glad you're here today, you survivors of Thanksgiving. I mean, more turkey than you ever thought you could eat, more family than you were maybe comfortable with, travel that was challenging, but you made it. You're safe until a couple weeks, got Christmas time. So glad you're here. This is the uh, closing message of our series <clears throat> on the uh, parables of Jesus. Some people think, oh, parables, those are really nice little sweet stories that just have a really nice moral to them. But you've got to understand that Jesus didn't begin teaching in parables until Matthew chapter 13. After he was pretty much rejected by the Jewish people, he didn't teach straight on as much anymore. He taught in parables. And parables certainly have a common storyline, usually agriculture, that hide a mystery. doesn't hide it from you, it hides it for you. And oftentimes it takes some digging to understand the meaning of that mystery, of that parable. Because if you just walk away after the parable, you'll miss it. Well, the ones today, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, is a parable that I have not preached upon in my ministry time, 50 years. I, I can't say I deliberately avoided it, but I was never attracted to it. And you're going to understand why as we get into it. But this parable is so valuable because it answers some of the most incredible questions of our age, of any age. How can a good God allow evil? Why do bad things happen to good people? Does everything happen for a reason? Do you ever hear those questions? Do you ever have those questions? Isn't it incredible that Jesus answered those basic life orientation questions in a parable. And it's one of the only ones that he explained to his disciples afterwards. So let's look at it. Matthew 13, verse 24. Jesus told another parable about the kingdom of heaven. Now keep in mind that this is about the kingdom of heaven. It's like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. How many of you have ever gardened? Do you like are weeds your friend? <laughs> They're not our friend. They take up space, they take up nourishment, they, they inhibit the production of a good crop. You don't like weeds. And then the Owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seeds in your field? Where did the weeds come from? Are you beginning to get a wisp of the meaning of the question? You're a good master. Didn't you sow good seed? Where did the bad come from? And the owner said, An enemy did this. And the servant said, do you want us to go and pull them up? You want us to get rid of the bad in the field? And the owner said, no, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. 
Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the weed and bring the wheat into my barn. Now, did you notice, like in verse 27, that the servants had the same questions that we have? You're good. Why is there bad? And then next they said, do you want us to get rid of the bad? How many Christians today have difficulty with the bad things that happen in the world. In fact, sometimes have a judgmental attitude toward those bad things that happen in the world and find themselves, well, thinking they're deputized to take that bad out. Why do bad things happen? Well, if you go down the page, verse 36, then Jesus left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Now, they didn't always ask about the meaning, but this one had their interest because it deals with such a universal problem and question of how life works. And just let me say there's a a lesson here for us. If you ever read a verse in the Bible, it doesn't make sense at first reading. Go to the author, ask the author. What does this mean? What does this tell us? And then wrestle with it until you feel that you have the answer because the mysteries of the kingdom are not hidden from you. They're hidden for you. Don't you love a treasure hunt? Well, we're about to go on a great treasure hunt right here. Jesus answered, explaining the parable. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, identifying himself, Jesus. You know, God is the one who authored good. The field is the world. Now, not the physical planet. The world referred to in the scripture means that existence of humans on the planet. Our society, our, the way we live, the world. And the field is the world. The good seed stands for people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. And so right away, Jesus throws this out, a subject that we like to avoid. I find that when people come to the idea of Satan or the devil, they are two extremes. One is to ignore Satan, ignore the existence of a personification of evil like the devil. Ignore, pretend, doesn't exist. Or on the other end, it is to amplify the presence and activity of the devil. Well, the devil did it. The devil's attacking me. The devil made me do it. All of those things, one side or the other. How can we have a balanced and correct understanding of the enemy? The devil, the devil literally is from a Greek word, diabolos, which means slanderer or accuser. What is it like when someone accuses another person? You're a bad person. You don't deserve. You're always messing up. Slanderer. They're bad. The word Satan 
stands for adversary or enemy. So here's the clue. Our enemy, if there is one, enemy of the kingdom of God is an accuser and a slanderer. And Jesus wanted us to understand how he works. So let me just give you a brief overview of biblical teaching on the devil. Where'd he come from? Well, he's a created being. He's not coexistent with God. God created him as a wonderful, beautiful angel referred to as Lucifer. Now you can Google this and find it out almost anywhere. So Lucifer was leading the worship of God and got prideful resentful and wanted to have that worship and adoration for himself. So he led a rebellion in heaven. One-third of the angels followed him. There's no contest. Creatures against the Creator, and he was defeated and thrown from the heavenly realm along with those angels who now operate as demons. And so in the world, we have an enemy, and we have those who are helping the enemy, and the way that he first influenced humankind was in the garden with the first creatures, the first humans, and he tempted them. He tempted their pride. You know, God's not giving you a square deal here. You can be like God if you do what God says not to do. They took it in their own hands, and when they ate of that fruit, symbolically, Whatever they did, did they disobey God? It says the Bible indicates they fell from that innocence, from the height of glory of the creation of mankind. And, and the relationship with God became fractured. And the relationship with each other became fractured. It wasn't long before the first murder. And the relationship with the environment became fractured so that the environment was no longer receptive and friendly to the efforts of of mankind. In fact, as you study this carefully, you'll, you'll discover that apparently Satan was able to steal the mandate, the authority that God intended humankind to have and to exercise benevolently on the planet. But now, Satan exercises it, not benevolently, but the other way. In fact, as the creation was adjusted to reflect the fracture. Weeds were allowed into agricultural processes. The weather was probably affected where before it had been friendly and supportive. Maybe some natural laws, DNA, relationships. Everything in the world began to reflect the brokenness of the relationship with God. So who did Satan become? How is he referred to? Jesus himself referred to Satan in John chapter 14, verse 30. The prince of this world. Did you know Jesus called Satan the prince of this world? Having some, some modicum of rule within the world, Jesus identifies him, the enemy, as someone who has some authority in the world. And we go on, we follow this land through Scripture, 1 John 5, 19, where we are told we're the children of God, but the whole world is under control of the evil one. Is this, certain, is this sermon getting a little scary? 
The whole world is under the control of the evil one. This is kind of dark, scary, and you're probably wondering, is Daniel coming back next week? We got good pastor, bad pastor thing going on here. <laughs> oh, well, he, <laughs> the world under the control of the, what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, you can't make decisions, that he influences you and takes away your free will? No, we're going to see what he does. But the world is under control. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 2, the way we lived before we knew Jesus, we followed the ways of this world, influenced by the enemy, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the atmosphere, what we think. The spirit now at work in those who are disobedient. What is this spirit? Well, it's, it's kind of exemplified. It can be exemplified uh, by one thing. Um, there's TV and radio waves and internet, Wi-Fi, all going on. And if we just look at one slice of that advertising, what is one of the main motifs of advertising? It is to convince you to be discontent with what you have. And to desire what you don't have and what others have, to envy that feeling you would have if you had it, and to spend money that you don't have to buy what you don't need and will soon regret it. That's an example of the thinking that goes on that influences our lives, and we are pounded with that, even if you just take the discontent part. Discontent. What about beauty products and clothing? where people are discontent with their, their appearance and get down on themselves. We're going to see that's part of the end game of the enemy. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, we're told where this battle takes place. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age, that's Satan, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Blinded to the what? The minds. The battle, the attack that Satan carries out primarily happens between your ears. Do you ever have a thought cross your mind that doesn't sound like it came from God? Going back to body image, do you ever have thought cross your mind? Well, you know, you're no good. You're not acceptable. You're not one that people would approve. You're not lovable. Do you ever have those kind of accusing? Remember, devil means accuser. You're no good. God doesn't love you. When you have those thoughts, where do they come from? Now, I'm not saying every thought like that of negativity is from Satan. We're perfectly capable of generating those some of those on our own. But you look at the malevolent nature of some of those thoughts where some people are just beat down. You're no good. You don't deserve to live. Things will never work out for you. What if that is the way Satan actually tries to influence people? Well, let's, let's go on to uh, look across the page at 2 Corinthians 2, 11. And Paul says, we want to make sure in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, it's scary enough that there would be random 
attempts to take away our peace and joy and to ruin our lives. But is, are there schemes? What is the scheme? It's an actual plan of attack. And when you plan a scheme, do you plan against the strength of the opponent or the weakness of the opponent? The Satan's schemes, well, let's look at what they are. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, we have the most famous operation of Satan when he tempts Jesus. Jesus, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Are you surprised that we find the devil so blatantly identified and described in Scripture? Probably these aren't the Scriptures that you tape on your refrigerator or that you memorize. And that's okay. We don't want to give more to Satan, the enemy, than is necessary. But it's very important that we recognize that there is a personification, a person, personal devil who is scheming against and wants to rob, steal, kill, and destroy God's people and every person on the planet. Tempted by the devil. What do you think the first area of temptation was? If you are the Son of God, have you ever heard anything like that? Well, if you're such a good Christian, well, God doesn't really love you. You just think that God cares for you. The first attack is on identity. Who are you? We can spend our lives trying to build an identity by what we possess or have or do or how we look. But our basic identity, God teaches us, is as a child, a beloved child of God. Now, we're not the Son of God like Jesus was, but we are His beloved children. Now, if you are a beloved child, how would you expect God to treat you? If you are here and your parents, how do you treat your children? Do you scheme and plan bad things for them? No. You want to protect them all that you can. If you are really loved of God, the attack is on identity. We find it novel, if not difficult, to say, I'm a beloved child of God. Say that just now under your breath. You know, nobody has to hear it. But just say, I'm a beloved child of God. Isn't it too bad that that feels novel? Or even wrong, because we go around feeling so bad about ourselves. I'm a beloved, if you start your day, I'm a beloved child of God. You're going to have a better day. The next part of the temptation, tell these stones to become bread. In other words, fulfill legitimate desire in a wrong or illegitimate way. You see, Jesus wasn't to use his miraculous powers for himself. He didn't. He was tempted to. Are we tempted to fulfill legitimate desires in an illegitimate way? And what we eat, how we think, what we acquire, sexual purity, to fulfill legitimate desires in a way that's wrong, that's self-centered, that's grasping. Now, there were three temptations of Satan at this time. The first one, to fulfill legitimate needs in an illegitimate way. The second was to jump off the temple so everybody would be impressed. 
Second temptation, do whatever it takes to get the approval of people. Get people to like you. Don't do anything so that people won't like you. Do you ever have those inclinations? Well, guess where they come from? Not that you want to just do things to offend people, but to live your life for the approval of others makes you a puppet. It puts you in Satan's realm of influence because you can be stampeded into doing all kinds or avoiding all kinds of things. The third temptation was taken to a high mountain, shown the kingdoms of the earth, and told, if you worship me, you can have control. So the third temptation is for control. Now, we don't think of ourselves as control freaks, but we know people who are, right? But we all want to have enough control over our lives so that we avoid bad things, and so that we are enjoying the good things. We want to have control so that we instruct others in their behavior so that our lives will be better. We correct those who do not operate according to what would make me happy. Is that control? Well, maybe soft control. Look at those three temptations. Identity, meet a need in the wrong way, seek the approval of others, and have control. Have you ever had thoughts, any thoughts in those areas? Have you ever had a thought, well, God can't love you, look what you did. You better stay away from church a couple of weeks because of what you did. You ever had those thoughts? Well, I'm going, here's, here's the temptation. You can do this, nobody will know, and it's really okay. No, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, but it's going to feel so good. No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, but it's going to be really great. Or where's that coming from? And then you do it, and two seconds later, what's the word in your mind? You hypocrite. You are such a loser. Oh, that was so bad. Working both sides of the equation. And all of it happens right there in your cranium where the enemy attacks and seeks to plant the bad and evil seeds. How else does he work? How about fear? How about worry? How many of you, when you worry, you end up seeing yourself in the best-case scenario, and everything works out, and you win, and it's wonderful. Doug, that's not my worry. (laughs) That's not describing my worry. Our worries usually are what? Taking a little bit of present evidence and building, wrapping a story of worst-case scenario where it's all bad. And now I'm scared. Now I'm fearful. Now I'm anxious. Now I'm trying to avoid it. Now I'm trying to figure out how not to experience that worst-case scenario. Now I'm disturbed. Now I'm irritable, and now I'm desperate, now I'm making bad decisions that may bring about a worst-case scenario. If worry usually starts with, what if? What if that medical diagnosis turns out to be a disaster? What if your bank account is, what if this relationship, what if your job, what if, what if? Do you ever have what ifs? 
come to your mind? Where do they come from? Can you imagine God saying, hey, what if your life completely sucked? <laughs> no. What do you do with those attacks, those thoughts? What if the worst thing happens? Do you realize that worry can be defined as imagining the future without God present? So we project this worst-case scenario and we face it alone with inadequate resources. And God's nowhere to be found in our worry. Who do you think's authoring that kind of thought? It's the enemy planting those bad seeds. I'm not saying every worry thought is from the enemy because we can generate some. But when they just dog us and you can't sleep at night, what will happen? Oh, no, I can't avoid it. And we begin again to be fretful, anxious, stressed, distressed. We are under, we're allowing Satan to influence us. And then the accusations, you're not good enough. You're not even good. You do something wrong, how stupid can you be? I mean, who else does stupid things like that? You ever hear those thoughts? You'll never make it. You'll never turn out good. And then the accusations and slander about other people. You see someone you didn't know before, and you're thinking, what an idiot. I mean, that person's such a, look at how they're dressed. I mean, they're such a loser. How can they walk around like a human being? Where does that come from? We can certainly attest some of it to our desire to feel better than others, so we put them down, but... There is a root of evil here in these accusations against us and also against other people. So we're looking at how Satan works. And we need to look at how he probably doesn't. Have you ever had a dead battery in your car? Have you ever had your computer go on the fritz? And someone says, well, that's an attack of Satan right there. <laughs> we, know the, we know the devil's in the details, but not those details. From what I can tell, when Jesus died on the cross, he not only conquered death, he conquered Satan and took Satan captive and limited Satan from being able to affect circumstances from things happening like a flat tire. We sometimes get distracted and think it was Satan who caused our computer to mess up. We go off in the wrong direction. But here's, here's where the real attack is. Say your computer messes up. And you're like, oh, why does the bad things always happen to me? I can't believe I'm such a loser. Why can't I figure anything out? And your kids come in, Mommy, can I? No, you can't. It, that's where it goes. You see, the attack is after the bad thing happens. And influencing you to go the wrong direction to steal your joy. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that people usually, after some bad thing happens, they say, well, you know, all things happen for a reason. I don't, do you ever see people after good things happen saying that? I mean, a wide receiver that makes a touchdown, he doesn't say, well, everything happens for a reason. 
Oh, no. But when the bad things happen, what we're doing is we're assuming that God caused it and that he had a reason to make the bad thing happen so that we are going to learn some lesson in life. And I can tell you, that is a lie. That should be a relief to you. I counsel with people, and often I will hear people say, well, God had to get my attention by thus and such tragedy and for me to learn, or God caused this or whatever. And I find that when people say that, they have a hard time receiving comfort and strength from the God they think that caused their problem. I wouldn't want to snuggle up against with someone who had caused disaster in my life. We just seal ourselves off from the one who can love and care for us in the midst of the disaster. God's not causing disasters. But he's there to walk with us through them. So, Doug, why do all these things happen in life? Like I told you, the world has been kind of calibrated to reflect that fractured nature, and things just happen. Traffic, traffic accidents happen. Traffic jams happen. God doesn't cause them. Satan doesn't cause them. But in a traffic jam, what can go on in your mind can affect how you arrive at Thanksgiving dinner with the family. And if you let it just wrap you up, I can't believe this traffic. You get there, and it's not going to be a pleasant meal because that's where Satan's attack. And that's where you have a chance to open your heart to God. God, I don't like traffic jams. I don't believe you made them. I don't think Satan is capable of creating them either. But I'm sitting here. And I'm held up from being where I want to go. God, I want to use this time in my mind to think on what is true and right. Wow, I want to be there. And when I get there, I want to have some time with my uncle that I haven't seen. I want to have some time with my, my niece that I haven't had time with. I thank you for my family. I thank you I have somewhere to go. I thank you I have transportation. I don't like the traffic jam. I'm not going to let it ruin my day. Do you see how you change it? But most other people in the jam, what are they thinking? It is not good. But you have a choice. You can choose where you're going to go with this. Satan causes these attacks. There are a couple of passages. You can check this later. Acts 12, where uh, Herod arrests some of the disciples and kills James, brother of John. If there were going to be a passage that said Satan caused the death of one of the disciples, that would be it. There's not a whiff of it. Not a whiff of it. And then in Acts 27, there is a storm at sea and a shipwreck, and Paul's ship is wrecked, and they're cast upon the shore. Two chapters that describe it, and there's not a hint of Satan's activity. It's the weather. Sometimes the weather impedes where we want to go. And then the, the place where we are told that Satan had a, an opportunity was in Luke twenty two thirty one, Jesus, last night on earth, with disciples, upper room, and he says, Peter, 
Satan wants to sift you. And Satan says, oh, no way. You know, I'm, I'm strong. I'm not falling for anything. And he says, when you've denied me three times, and, and Peter, no, I'm not going to do it. Did Satan cause Peter to be so self-protective that he denied Jesus three times? Probably so. But you know where he really wanted to work, Peter? Shame and guilt. You see, Judas, who not only denied Jesus but turned him in, was influenced by Satan to the point where he took his own life. But Peter, because Jesus said, I'm going to pray for you, you'll be sifted, but you'll come through, became a leader of the church, whereas shame and guilt of denying Jesus could have cut him off at the knees. We need to look at the right side and the bright side of life. Because we're told that Jesus, well, God works things. Romans 8, 28, let's look at that. Does God sometimes work through circumstances to make things happen for our benefit? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, have been called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean necessarily just everyone, but those people who love him are cooperating, participating in his kingdom work, who are present in the situation to be people of patience and joy, not to be disgruntled people, God can work things, circumstances, for the good. So yeah, there are good things that happen to us that are unaccountable, that we know that God can do those kinds of things for us. Have you been blessed? Are there ways that you've been blessed? God loves you. In James chapter 1, verse 17, we are told, James 1, 17, don't be deceived for every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Go to 17. Comes from the, down from the Father of lights, heavenly lights, who doesn't change. God is good and he's in a good mood. And he loves you. And he wants to be extravagant with good gifts for you. He wants you to know how much he loves you. And he wants to warn you about the schemes of the evil one. So that when those thoughts come to your mind, what if bad things happen? You're so bad. They're so bad. You will cut those off. You will refuse entry of those thoughts into your mind because they come from the evil one. Now let's look real quickly at the last part of this parable's explanation. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, this is verse uh, 40 of uh, 13. So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? And so we, we don't like that. We go, God I, God, I don't like you being judged like that. I like you snuggle, God, but not the judge, God. And yet we are informed as things started off good, they got tainted. They will end good. 
Aren't you glad there will be justice at the end of the age? That there is a creator loving God who will determine when life as we know it comes to an end at the end of this age and he will sort things out. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about sorting things out and and, and calling out the, the bad people. We're called to love God and love people. We'll let him sort it out at the end because that's what he told his servants to do. I trust this is helpful to you in alerting you to the influence that can bring you down. But you need to know that it was Jesus' death on the cross, represented by the bread that's his body broken for us, the cup that's his blood shed for us, not just to forgive us, but to defeat the enemy and to give us the power to defeat the enemy's attacks against our minds. Those things that would bring us down. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you have given us insight. You have given us information, your word that alerts us to the activity of the enemy. But thank you for the assurance that you're going to sort it out. You're going to take care of it. But you've alerted us during this time when things are not complete and not perfect that we resist, that we expel those thoughts, those seeds that come from the enemy. Thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.